Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. This morning we will continue to look at the third essential of the faith. We have been looking at our essential statement of faith, that is seven doctrinal statements that our church affirms and gladly proclaims. We are at the tenth part of that series, even though we're only at the third essential of the faith. We are going to try to look today at the essential of the faith around Jesus Christ and as I mentioned, we're going to look at just a portion of it because this is this time will actually be the third Sunday we were looking at the essential of the faith in regards to Jesus Christ. This is how the essential of the faith reads. And it doesn't read, we affirm, but it doesn't make sense unless I say that at the beginning of it because it's just a statement. So we affirm, one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work and substitutionary death, and his personal return in power and glory. And it is understandable that this is already the third part in this one statement of faith because there is an incredibly vast wealth of information and application in this one statement. We have looked at two-thirds, or three-quarters actually, of the statement. Last week we looked at the centrality of the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even though within the statement they're not written in that order, they really cannot and should not be separated. That is, his substitutionary death and resurrection. That was the foremost message that Paul preached, which we saw from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is the message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in which we stand. Those are the key truths in which it says we are saved the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the most glorious of all the glorious doctrines of the faith. They are eternally essential, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This morning we're going to focus on truths presented in the statement of faith which follow the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. These are truths in which we live today and which we have cause to rejoice in eternally. We affirm Christ's ascension, his mediatorial work, and his personal return in power and glory. That is what we're going to be looking at this morning. His ascension, his mediatorial work, and his personal return in power and glory. In a sense, the death and resurrection are the grounds of our salvation, and so are glorious. But these truths are glorious as well, because they are present-day and future realities that excite us and enable us to live pleasing to God. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, reading to the end of verse 11. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. In this passage, we see a glimpse of the truths of the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. We also see, maybe a little more dimly, a glimpse of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. First, we see the ascension, and we affirm the ascension of Jesus Christ. It is true. It is a reality. It is actual, and it has great impact. In verse 2, it says, Until the day in which he was taken up. Other translations render this as taken up to heaven, which aligns with verse 9 to 11. There it says, He was taken up, and a cloud received him. It also says, And they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. And it also says, The angels asked them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? So four times in this passage, it affirms the ascension of Jesus Christ in just these few verses. Jesus Christ was taken up to heaven. Now, if that's not proof enough for you, or it's too limited as far as scope of passage, then consider these passages. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Luke chapter 24, verse 51. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And the book of Hebrews as well has a lot of references to this. It goes beyond the term taken up into heaven and rather describes it as seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, chapter 1, verse 3. Ascended into heaven, chapter 4, verse 14. Entered the sanctuary on our behalf, chapter 6, verse 20. Has become higher than the heavens, chapter 7, verse 26. Seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, chapter 8, verse 1. Entered the holy place made with hand, without hands into heaven itself, chapter 9, verse 24. Sat down at the right hand of God, chapter 10, verse 12. And sums it up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is no doubt Jesus Christ has ascended. But what difference does it make? And why is it an essential? There are several things accomplished in the ascension of Jesus Christ. And although I don't have opportunity or time to deal with them all at length, I'd like at least to consider them this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1. Now this passage, many don't look at it as a primary one in regards to the ascension of Jesus Christ. But what it says is definitely central. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul speaking says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The ascension of Jesus Christ is clearly presented in this passage. And although there are other great truths that are spoken of here as well, I want to focus on that one. 
and three ideas that come from, or truths that are contained here, which are revolutionary because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The first one that I want to stress is not the first one that's spoken of, it's actually the second one. But in the ascension of Jesus Christ, Christ was glorified. It is clearly proclaimed here. In verse 19 to 23, it declares that God the Father, by his mighty power, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And observe how that glorification is presented in verse 21 to 22. He placed him far above all principality, far above all power, far above all might and dominion. He's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but eternally. He has been glorified. This is truly exaltation. He is above all things. He is exalted throughout all time. That is exhaustive and all-inclusive. There is nothing over which Christ is not set far above. He has been given dominion over all. He truly is the glorified Lord of all. It continues to describe that exalted position in verse 22. He, that is God the Father, put all things under His Son, or His, that is God the Son's feet. So God the Father put all things under God the Son's feet. Christ is supreme. Christ is sovereign. Christ is ruler. Christ truly is master. Christ is Lord in every sense of the word. That preeminent position as master of all was placed upon Christ in his resurrection and ascension. Believer's Bible commentary has this to say about the exaltation of Christ. Perhaps we would think that the creation of the universe was the greatest display of God's might or God's miraculous deliverance of his people through the Red Sea. But no, the New Testament teaches that Christ's resurrection and ascension required the greatest outflow of divine energy. Why was this? It seems that all the hosts of hell were masked to frustrate God's purpose by keeping Christ in the tomb or by pre preventing his ascension once he was raised. But God triumphed over every form of opposition. Christ's resurrection and glorification were a shattering defeat for Satan and for his hosts and a glorious spectacle of victorious power. The resurrection and ascension, a glorious spectacle of victorious power. In the resurrection and ascension of Christ, he has been glorified. Now, just as a side note, there's a lot of question about application of this, both of Christ's authority and our authority in the world in him. Keep in mind that although Christ has been glorified and exalted, he is not executing his authority now as he will at the end of the age. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 to 25 shows us that when it says after the resurrection, this is after the resurrection, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That is, Christ's ultimate authority has been granted. It is established. It is certain. However, Christ is not yet enforcing it. He is not yet causing every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is yet to come nor are all those placed under the authority, all of those things placed under the authority of mankind, as some would like to think. It was originally in the Garden of Eden, that authority, but in sinning, mankind lost his dominion. It was Adam's sin that brought the curse on creation. Man's control over nature was challenged and was then limited in Hebrews chapter 2, and you can check that out at another point if you want, speaks to that when it says at the very end of the verse, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. 
that is coming a day when that will take place. Nonetheless, in the resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ was glorified and placed far above all things. The second thing that we see from that passage and from Christ's resurrection and ascension in the same passage is that that same power is at work within us today. And that should cause us to marvel. Not only do we see Christ glorified, him exalted, but we see that power. It says, it testifies that that power, that same power, is at work within the believing child of God. The passage clearly says this in verse 19 to 21. You see what the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That power of God displayed in glorifying Jesus Christ through his ascension is the same power that is at work within you. It is the same power saving and securing you. It is the same power keeping you. The power of God towards you is, it says, according to the power of the resurrection and ascension. And that word according is incredible. That means it is of like measurement. God's power towards you is of like measurement as the power of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It is from the same storehouse of God's infinite power. It flows from the same source, the all-sufficient provision of God's power has reached out to you. Now, if I was to say that I would grant you an inheritance from my wealth or according to my wealth, it would mean that it is based on what I have, flows from what I have. That, for me, would be very limited, and so you wouldn't be getting very much in your inheritance. But when we receive from God what is according to what he has, it is infinite. The source of the power is according to. Don't gloss over those words. This is God's mighty power towards you. It is in measure the same as the power that raised Jesus Christ and glorified Christ. Never doubt God's power to accomplish in you and through you what he desires. Simply yield to him and allow him to. The third thing that I would like you to see from this passage in regards to the ascension of Christ is that in it we see the church, the body of Christ, exalted. In his glorification, we see Christ placed as head over all things to the church, it says in verse 22. His sovereign rule over all things is for the church and it is to the church. That means that God has chosen to work a most glorious work on and in all those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every born-again believer makes up the church universal, and God has given Christ to be head over us. We who are in Christ are his body, and there is a distinct connection between the power of God in the glorification of Christ and the power of God at work to accomplish his divine purpose in you, the church. It's according to the power, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It is for you and to you, the church. In Christ's glorification, God the Father gave Christ to be head over the church, to rule and to direct the church, but also for the church to cooperate with him and to complement Christ as our body does our head. It works in union to accomplish our desires, that is our body and head. So the church is in union with God through Jesus Christ to do what God desires. And so it is said of the church that it is the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is the completion, the practical accomplishment would be a way of putting that, of what God intends. His body, the church, it's actually God's intent. It's God's purpose. It's God's plan for this day and this age. 
It is the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's plan of rulership in Christ, of dominion, will be accomplished through his hands and feet, through his body, the church. And we'll examine that further when we actually look at the doctrine that speaks of the church. But we shouldn't neglect it here. God is doing a unique work in the church, his body. It is an eternal work. For we will never not be united with Jesus Christ as his body. We are one with him. He is exalted through the ascension, and that is in one sense for the sake of us, his body, the church. That leads us to the second point, second major point. We affirm Christ's mediatorial work. Now you may ask, what does Christ's mediatorial work have to do with the church being the fullness of him who fills all in all? Jesus Christ fills all in all. He supplies all defects in all his members, filling them with his spirit. And even with the fullness of God, the church is said to be his fullness because Christ as mediator would not be complete in that sense if he had not a church. How could he be a king if he does not have a kingdom? This therefore contains or comes comes into the honor of Jesus Christ as mediator that the church is his fullness. Now, even the term mediator is not one that we're terribly familiar with. Mediatorial work of Christ means Christ is the go-between, between man and God. Jesus Christ is the intercessor. By Christ, we have access to God. And through Christ, God reaches down and touches mankind. We often just look at it from one side. He is the mediator, both for man to God and also for God to man. Believer's Bible commentary says, a mediator is a go-between, a middleman, who can stand between two and communicate with both. Through Christ, himself man, God is enabled to approach men with forgiveness of sins. Consequently, any poor sinner can approach him and will by no means be rejected. Do you hear both directions in flow of communication there? God to man through Jesus Christ and man to God through Jesus Christ. These verses clearly speak of God reaching out to man through Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 to 6, this is the key one. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He is the mediator. He is the go-between. And he will continue to mediate. Hebrews speaks a lot of this mediatorial work of Christ. But I'll just give you a verse or two in it. Actually, I won't even give them to you. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 is the one. I'm not going to read it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It speaks about the fact that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and that it is a better covenant. The old covenant was the covenant of law, basically. It was a promise that God's blessing would be upon those who obeyed him. That covenant was not a bad covenant, but it was bound to fail because of our inability to obey God. It was dependent upon mankind. The second covenant, which Christ is the mediator of, is a covenant or promise based on God's grace. In that sense, it is a covenant based solely upon God. It is an unconditional covenant of grace. It applies the righteousness of Christ to the believing sinner through no merit of his own. Because it is based in God and mediated or brought to man through Christ, it is fully able to make sinners righteous. It is also able to teach us to live righteously. It empowers us to live righteously. And then it rewards us in the end for living righteously. That is the wonder of the new covenant that Christ mediates, that Christ brings essentially to mankind from God. That is, Christ is the mediator between God and man. He is also the mediator between men and God. And this is the one that we tend to focus on because we recognize that we fail. And even though he has mediated his new covenant and he equips us for victory, we still fail. 
we still have our sin nature, and so we are prone to sin. In that, Christ is our mediator before God. He is the one who is the intercessor, or the advocate is another word that is used, who goes before the Father. We see that idea presented, particularly in the word intercession, more so than any other word. But the role of a mediator is to be that intercessor. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession, mediation for us. Is there cause for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to be condemned? Absolutely. There is. You have lots of causes. I have lots of causes. We fail, we fall, we sin. Yet it is the risen and exalted Christ who in his work of mediating for us intercedes before the Father. That is, he stands in our place. He speaks on our behalf. He takes the rightly deserved condemnation that has been screamed at us and he bears it in himself. He communicates with the Father, so to speak, that he has borne that sin as well. He intercedes. Jesus Christ continues forever. Hebrews also tells us as the unchangeable high priest, that role of an intercessor, that he goes between. And when we do fall, he is the one who stands before God. That's also where we get the term advocate from in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Advocate and intercessor are not exactly the same. Advocate is more of a legal counsel standing before God. And it's an amazing word because it says, it says there in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's everything he's written before. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ is our counsel standing before God when we have been condemned by our sin, but he is the perfect advocate, the perfect counsel, because he is the lamb slain in my place. Christ advocates for the believing sinner by taking upon himself my guilt and paying the price for my sin. That is the kind of intercessor that we have. The mediatorial work of Jesus Christ is absolutely relevant and it is absolutely essential. Without it, God's grace would not be mediated to us. And without it, forgiveness in Christ would not be mediated for us. He is the one who stands before the Father. If we stand before the Father without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. In Jesus Christ, we have all hope. We have all confidence. We have all assurance. My third point, I'm going to give it to you in brief notes because we're going to come back to it next week. But it's a good one. We affirm Christ's personal return in power and glory. We affirm it. It's true. It's a reality. Jesus Christ is coming again. Going back into Acts chapter 1, he says, in like manner as he went, he is also coming again. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be exactly the same. It's not going to be an idyllic situation, I don't think. It's not going to be nice and quiet with green grass and nice fluffy white clouds. Maybe there will be some white clouds that says he's coming on the clouds. But when it says that he's coming in like manner, it literally means that. He is coming literally and physically. Jesus Christ is coming in. Now, there's lots of discussion as to how exactly that looks. And are we talking his second coming in the rapture or his second coming in judgment, his second coming in righteousness? I would encourage you not to get too caught up in all those, especially as this statement of faith, the reality is he is coming in glory and in power. And there are references which speak to both rapture and which speak to him coming in judgment. And it doesn't look to me like they're one and the same. One speaks about him catching us up to be with him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord in First Thessalonians. And then there are others which are much clearer. Uh, I'll just give you a smattering here. Just one, actually. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That's actually not the best one. The other one is 
about the wrath of God and after the coming, after the tribulation of those days, it says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, on and on it goes, everything's going to fall apart and he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. This is Jesus Christ coming in glory and in power and it may sound like a horrific time and it will be a horrific time for those who are not in Jesus Christ. But for those in Jesus Christ, this will be the accomplishment, the completion of our hope in Jesus Christ. As it speaks about in Romans chapter 8, we hope for that which is coming, and so we endure patiently. We are looking forward to the day when he makes all things new. Right now, even we who have the first fruit of the spirits, even we who are believers, it says we groan within ourselves, waiting our redemption, the adoption of our bodies, waiting this day when Jesus Christ makes all things new. And so we endure patiently, rejoicing and excitedly looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Creation itself, it says, is even longing for that day when he returns in power and in glory. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in this life at all. Our confidence isn't in this life. Our expectation is not in this life. It isn't even in what Jesus Christ will do in me in this life. Our longing our confident expectation, our hope is for when Jesus Christ comes again. We shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we are made new, when this body is put off, this sin is put off, this mortal is made immortal, this fleshly is made spiritual, this temporal is made eternal, all of these things, when Jesus Christ returns. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about how this will look exactly or when it will take place. No man knows the hour, so you can't figure it out anyways. But rejoice in the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. Revelation 22 verse 20 says, surely I'm coming, Christ says. And it says, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. We affirm Christ's ascension. We affirm Christ's mediatorial work, and we affirm his personal return in power and glory. I see a connect between these three truths, apart from the fact that they are all either present and future in a sense, apart from the fact that they're all since the cross looking forward, I see a connect in these three truths. I see glory and I see freedom or victory, whichever you want to call it, in those three truths. In the ascension of Christ, we see him glorified and we see us liberated as his body set free as his body to be and to do what he has called us to be and do. In the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, I see the glory of God condescending to man in grace and mercy. And in light of the intercession of Jesus Christ, I see the ability to live in freedom from sin and the freedom from guilt when we do sin. Glorification and freedom. The personal return of Jesus Christ in glory and power, we certainly see the glory of God demonstrated. He will come to rule and to reign. He is coming to reconcile all things to himself. And I see incredible freedom in that. Freedom that will be for the child of God by grace through faith. Freedom from sin. Not just the power of sin, which we have been set free from, but even the presence of sin. When he makes all things new, he is making me new as well. No longer, no longer will anything that is of Satan, anything that is of the flesh, anything that is of the earth have sway over me in Jesus Christ. For he will finally and completely defeat sin, death, and the grave. 
and all we will know from there through eternity is freedom and victory in Jesus Christ. These are maybe theoretical statements of faith. Maybe that is where we place them, but we must not keep them there. And I pray that as we work through and as we continue to work through the essentials, yes, we see them as essential. We see them as important because they unite us and we minister and we proclaim these truths. But if we just see them as essential truths that are good for our head and distant from our heart, we've accomplished nothing in that sense. Because the very idea of an essential truth is that our lives would be transformed by it. Transformed by the ascension of Jesus Christ because it is glorious and in it Christ is glorified. Transformed by the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ because without it you cannot be saved. And transformed as we consider that Jesus Christ is coming again because that is the motive. That is the means in which we live. That is for the one in Jesus Christ. Isn't that all we live for truly? And if we live for anything else then aren't we doing it wrong, truly? Essential truths. I pray your lives would be transformed by them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word and that you are still speaking through your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who convicts of the truth of your word to us. And this morning, Lord, we submit to this truth. And I ask that by a miraculous work, Lord, you would take this from our head to our heart. Not that we would ignore it in our head, but that even as we affirm it, we'd be transformed by it. Forgive us for being caught up in things that are temporal, things that are earthly, things that are of self, and cause us to have eyes that are fixed upon you. Cause us to have lives that are, as we persevere, are eagerly anticipating the day when you come to take us to be with yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.